Goebbels, Brand Management and Genocidal Mythmaking. Genocide is a weapon of propaganda. I recently came across this in a thread I was participating in. Okay, so it's part of a tweet whose author I ended up blocking, but you can still find the tweet in question, my answers below. So you can have a look through all of this, including the person I blocked. So the context. He, ostensibly a Frenchman in the Ukrainian trenches, though it's Twitter, so who knows, was replying to an actual Ukrainian who grew up in the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic about the Soviet treatment of Crimean Tatars during the time that the said Ukrainian was growing up there. So while the Ukrainian in question actually was often in Crimea, so was I, FYI, every summer as a child, the Frenchman was not. Yet the Frenchman was adamant that he was right. And so the Frenchman wrote, bringing up the Tatars in to defend Russia's treatment of minorities after two different instances of ethnic cleansing and genocide is quite the feat. Congrats on being this blissfully unaware. So the Frenchman who wasn't there was telling somebody who was there that basically the person who was there doesn't know what he's talking about. Okay? To which I replied, show at least, and this is my tweet, show at least one documented and agreed upon instance of ethnic cleansing or genocide of minorities in Russia, and not purely fabricated crap like turning a USSR-wide famine tragedy into quote-unquote Holodomor against Ukrainians, plus provide historical context for what you think you know. It's fair to say, especially online or increasingly on TV in the West, that any political opponent in the modern discourse is immediately a Nazi. Similarly, any historical grievance is a genocide that is thrown at any nation with a history of wars, that is, at any sizable modern state. The problem is obvious and threefold. Number one, politically, the elites in a less wealthy and or numerous nation want to use the victimhood status to gain potential reparations from the wealthier slash more numerous nation by any means possible. All's fair in love and war. Second issue, the impacts on the wrongfully accused are also clear. Accusing various historical governments of alleged genocides smears their modern successors as well as the whole nations, thus dehumanizing them in a way. And number three, in turn, overusing such terms as Nazi and genocide cheapens these and diminishes the crimes of the actual Nazis, creates possibilities for denial of actual genocides, such as the Holocaust or the Armenian Genocide, and whitewashes the Nazi revival, such as various neo-Nazi movements. I can think of no example more insane than the whitewashing of the Ukrainian Nazi collaborators Bandera and Shuhevich, their organizations OUN, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, and UPA, or UPA, which stands for Ukrainska Postanska Armia, which in English means Ukrainian Insurgent Army. And their modern Ukrainian equivalents such as Azov, S-14, and the right sector, and at the same time bringing out all the decades of smear campaigns against the USSR and Russia, accusing them of multiple genocides. I can think of, an, of no example more insane than this. Now, Russophobia deserves its own post, and so do the Ukrainian Nazis, both historical and modern. 
For now, I'll just look at the genocide accusations against the historical and modern Russias. And now, business games. Welcome to... Another entry in our geopolitically propagandistic season, where I continue the discussion of the propaganda, how dehumanization branding works and what makes it so pernicious. I started this in my previous post and I'd like to explore the propaganda topic over the next few posts before we get to the actors and the geopolitics of it all. I highly encourage you to forward, share on social and in real life, take snippets, discuss. And of course support us with a paid subscription of your choosing. Either normal or recession-proof price both give you the same benefits and you pay what you want slash can afford. Your choice. So in the previous five posts, what we've done is the following. We've looked at a more personal side of my story as a former mid-core Ukrainian nationalist in 2022 and 11-12s. In NY Times, Disinformation Central, question mark, or how I lost trust in Western mainstream media and what to do about it, uh, basically what it says on the box. In Dirty Dozen Thinking Principles, how I process information, expands on the principles I use to critically evaluate the information flow, and these are useful especially when you don't have time to, to validate all the evidence. So you can just depend on one particular, like for example I did the in, uh, with the New York Times, and just look at their information critically just by looking at one source. You can do that. I tell you how. In the post about Mariupol and Bucha, narrative versus reality, this is where I apply my dirty dozen principles to the Western mainstream narrative on Mariupol and Bucha. Again, what it says on the box. False flags, false narratives is about a censored, peer-reviewed academic study by the foremost authority on the Ukraine's far right, from the University of Ottawa and why it's relevant to Butcher. So in my last post, I mentioned the writings of the Western academics and journalists who discuss Russophobia as racism and Russophobia's and Russiagate impact on the West itself. I'll now do two things. I'll develop the topic of dehumanizing the Russians further and I'll keep on applying our dirty dozen principle, thinking principles to the topic of the alleged Russian genocides. I intend to continue discussing the Russophobic propaganda effectively as a negative branding campaign by the West over several generations. So I intend to continue discussing that, the Ukrainian genocidal nationalism, and how the two come together in the Western proxy war on Russia. Then we'll cover the real background, which is basically it's the economy, stupid. And, and it is always the economy. But we'll get to that a bit later. And once we've understood the real motivations of the actors and the means by which the public opinion and consent get manufactured in the West and elsewhere, we'll cover the various actor factions, their moves, their revealed preferences, etc. in a more or less quote-unquote formal game theoretic context. So we'll go back to our game theory underpinnings. Now, by the end, you'll know more than you ever wanted about Ukraine and an angle at the geopolitical interactions you're not going to get in the mainstream media. Some alternative sources cover some of it, so I'm going to do it purposefully different 
so as not to repeat what's out there in exactly the same way. So after this post, I'm also removing my self-imposed handicap on using quote-unquote good, reliable Western and Ukrainian sources only. Since my first post of the season, I've by now shown beyond any reasonable doubt that the credible quote-unquote Western sources are often garbage. In fact, they're anything but credible. Participating in the same mis- and disinformation campaigns that they accuse others of attempting. Now, I'm happy to debate this point on merits. I think I've shown it beyond any reasonable doubt using the Western sources only. Look at my New York Times disinformation article. I've made my case in that article as well as in my Mariupol and Butcher posts And I will gladly debate the facts and the logic with anyone who asks in an open forum in good faith. So that's an open invitation. Bring me to your university, get a moderated debate. Happy to do that. I by now have more than enough information to be this confident. But for now, I'll use my own principle number 12 and expand the sources. And so the principle number 12 says that there is no single reliable source. Everyone lies and misinforms maybe to a degree, maybe on different topics, maybe unwittingly. And so corollary is that do not hunt for a single source or a single piece of evidence or even a single type of evidence. Instead, look at the cumulative impact of all types from all sources. So I'm dropping my handicap and I'm expanding my sources. Genocide is a weapon of propaganda. Just covered this in kind of a pre-intro. But so the problem of calling everything genocide, as I said, it's three. is politically, the elites are trying, of the less wealthy nations are trying to get some money effectively from anybody. So they create genocides. There is obviously a dehumanization campaign of the accused nation. And in turn, overusing such terms as Nazi and genocide actually undermines the crimes of the actual Nazis and the actual genocide. Now let's look at the modern days, at the 2022 and beyond quote-unquote genocide of Ukrainians. If you've been on social media post-February 2022 or watched Ukrainian or Western mainstream TV, you no doubt came across the hysteria about Russia's genocide, I'm doing the quotes, of Ukrainians. Never with any proof, but always with emotions and sometimes with photoshopped pictures of Putin with blood and whatnot. So I put genocide in quotes because it's pure BS, it's bullshit. Both on its own merits, as well as in light of what the Kiev regime had been doing in Donbass for over eight years, now over nine years since 2014. But the fact that this being pure BS does not prohibit pro-Kiev social and legacy media from using this rather crude lie for its own propagandistic purposes. So anytime a Kiev regime air defense rocket hits a Ukrainian civilian target, or indeed a Polish farm, there is immediately a blame Putin campaign coupled with Russia's genocide hysteria. Now I don't plan on disproving a purely BS claim, because using Hitchens' razor, what can be asserted without evidence can also be dismissed without evidence. Now, disproving BS is furthermore an unthankful job as per Brandolini's law, Brandolini's law, 
aka the bullshit asymmetry principle, which states that the amount of energy needed to refute bullshit is an order of magnitude bigger than that needed to produce it. I will, however, show some examples, and they're really important. So here's an example after a recent, after a recent from 15th of January 2023, tragedy in Dnipro. Olga Lautman, some Ukrainian propagandist and nationalist, tweeted, sickening watching Russia's terrorist attacks on innocent civilians. They are baby killers and must be stopped. Arm Ukraine with everything they need to defeat Russia. Enough of allowing Russia to drag out its genocide campaign. And she posted a crying grandfather who showed uh, his granddaughter who is, was missing or presumed dead. Now, of course, Russia did not target civilians in Dnipro or anywhere else for that matter. But here I'm talking about the civilians in Dnipro specifically. Now, how do we know this? We know this from Zelensky's top advisor at the time. Alexei Aristovich said that the Ukrainian air defense shot down the Russian rocket above a residential block, such that the rocket went off course, hit the residential block and detonated. He faced a backlash for speaking the truth and was later fired, but this does not change the fact that he spoke the truth. And again, I tweeted about it. And I think it's quite clear why. As I presented in Mariupol and Bucha narrative v. reality and false flags false narratives, the Kiev regime has a track record of false flag operations, as well as spinning its own mistakes as Russia's atrocities. Multiple Kiev regime soldiers reported the same in the past, for example, when they shot down a drone that fell into an apartment block in Kiev and killed civilians there. And I present evidence, so I present you an alternative Ukrainian media, but they are screenshotting the real Ukrainian media, Ukrainian national TV, where a soldier who shot down the drone basically said, yeah, we know these fall, you know, it's, it's a pity about the civilians, but what can you do? We're protecting military targets. So Kiev calculus is simple. It's okay to spend on civilian lives for gruesome PR pictures of the so-called Russian aggression, and the more civilian casualties, the better the picture. Stationing air defense inside residential areas and shooting down Russian Federation rockets above maximizes the damage and PR value. And of course, Western mainstream and social media amplifies now, this is going back to the far-right Maidan days in 2014, as we've seen with the academic study, which showed that the Maidan leaders shot hundreds of their own demonstrators in order to make a false flag operation, massacre, and blame it on Yanukovych at that time. So the calculus is very simple. The Western mainstream media will pick it up and multiply as Russian aggression, no matter the source of misery. Now, the recent words of this soldier, the Ukrainian soldier, or I would say pro-Kiev soldier on Ukrainian national TV, is not the only source of evidence we have about this behavior. There's more evidence from the past. From February 2022, in the Ukrainian mainstream media, there was a story with a headline saying, in Kiev, a nine-story residential building is on fire after the downing of an enemy object. There may be many victims, and it shows photos. So, 
again, way back at the beginning, before the narrative recommendations kicked in, before the concerted campaign, Ukrainian media was presenting things in a more objective way. They were saying that these were downed objects, rockets, whatever, which basically puts the blame on the Ukrainian air defense. Why are these objects downed above the residential buildings? Why is air defense not some distance outside of the city? And these rockets, the Russian rockets or the drones, would never have fallen onto the Ukrainian civilian buildings if not for the actions of the Ukrainian air defense. That's all admitted. So whatever Aristovich said was true. So we have a situation, we have a number of situations, and they all go back to the Kiev actions, to the pro-Kiev, to the Kiev regime actions, or the pro-Kiev soldiers. We've got Poland, where the Kiev air defense missile flew off course and killed Polish farmers. Pro-Kiev air defense missiles flying off course and hitting residential buildings and killing civilians is a routine situation. Now, in Kiev, the rocket and drones that were shot off course of their military courses by the Kiev forces above the residential areas. So we've got the Poland situation, we've got the Kiev situation. They're all documented. We've got the Dimpro situation, again, documented and proven. And we've got a multitude of other situations where you can look at those three and you can extrapolate. So it's either the pro-Kiev air defense rocket flying into a civilian area and killing civilians, like in Poland, or it's the Russian rocket and drone which had been shot off their military courses by the Kiev air defense or the pro-Kiev regime air defense. And then they go and fly into the civilian buildings and kill civilians. Or in Dnipro, where Aristovich, at that time the top Zelensky's advisor, basically admitted that, no, 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 it was us. We shot the rocket off course. So all cases of civilian casualties resulting directly from the actions of the pro-Kiev forces. And yet in all cases, Russia was immediately blamed. Here's some more entries in something that I call the genocide marketing campaign. By the anonymous operations and on, Russia should never again be allowed to hold the planet hostage so they can commit genocide. They do not deserve the responsibility of owning weapons of mass destruction, WMDs. And then we have more, including calling Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, and Stalin as those who genocide Ukrainians. No, they didn't. None of them. Neither Peter the Great, nor Catherine the Great, nor Stalin genocided Ukrainians. That's pure bullshit. But in such Russia bad hysteria, no evidence is ever needed. And notice the clearly racist language of blaming not only Putin as executing a genocide, but also that all Russians are like that. So we'll get to to Stalin in a second, but uh, because of the Holodomor discussion, but uh, here is the here's a tweet from somebody called Dr. Anna Pirate. MD, who claims to be Ukrainian. And what she's doing, she's presenting a snippet from a Russian TV, which it, it is, is completely out of context. Like the, she's, and she's misrepresenting it. And what she says is that the Russian TV listing all people who genocide Ukrainians as solution to current quote-unquote problem. They want to say, quote, final solution, but use codes like Stalin. And this is, again, this is pure garbage. And then she says, you know, 7 million Ukrainians murdered in one year. Again, pure fucking garbage. 
She continues, this is not Putin, you see. This is Russia. These are Russians. All are guilty. All. All caps. Full stop. So that's a hysteria from Dr. Anna Pirate, medical doctor. A Ukrainian living in the West, apparently, from her bio. And here's another case accusing a reporter of, quote, participating in genocide. Again, clearly an insane claim, but again, no evidence, no evidence is needed. And so Defmon, at Defmon 3, whoever the hell that guy is, says, in Russia you get a medal if you fuck up. Quote-unquote special correspondent Sasha Kotz received a medal for participating in a genocide. In my book, this means he is an enemy combatant. And then he shows a, uh, basically a military correspondent, Sasha Kotz, receiving a medal. For what? For participating in genocide. No evidence. None is needed. Goebbels' propaganda rules and brand management. Okay, these claims of the Russia's quote-unquote genocide are so numerous that I draw two immediate conclusions. Conclusion number one, this is a form of negative marketing, even a branding campaign, where if multiple people and TV channels talk of something as genocide, it will then be branded as such and people will start relating to this branding as something known, quote-unquote. So even subconsciously. In fact, especially subconsciously. There's one conclusion. Number two conclusion is these blunt lies are evidently so powerful I immediately want to know why. Now I'm going to throw some credentials at you. Okay, ready? I studied brand management at Melbourne Business School in an intensive course with Mark Ritson. At the time... Melbourne Business School was ranked number four in marketing in the world at an MBA level to a large extent due to Mark personally. I didn't do the MBA. I did his MBA elective course on its own in a condensed form. Now, I consider Mark Ritson to be the top management expert, brand management expert in the world. He consulted the likes of uh, LVMH, so Louis Vuitton Hennessy, for like a decade, and a multiple of other brands. So I'm proud to call him my professor. With this in mind, I immediately recognized the strong emotional message as the key in creating and reinforcing strong mental associations, such as Russia equals thugs, rapists, war criminals, equals genocide against the Ukrainians. These are all mental associations which are driven and reinforced in this campaign, and they they carry a strong emotional message. And these mental associations are there to build a clear brand image in the minds of the consumers of the news, in this case. And consumers are you. Because what's a brand? Well, some famous brand experts through the years, like, for example, Al Eichenbaum, the brand is the sum total of consumers' perceptions and feelings about the product's attributes about how it performs, about the brand name, and about the company associated with producing it. In this particular case, the sum total of consumers' perceptions and feelings about something, it's about Russia. And it's not the company that produces it, but it's it's still a brand. Or from L. Rees, where he says that the brand is a singular idea or concept that you own inside the mind of a prospect. So the brand image equals sum total of brand associations, which in our case for Russia is thugs, rapists, genocidal maniacs, orcs, horde, 
something very non-human and something that is subhuman, and in particular in the case of the Horde, as in the Golden Horde, are the nomads from the East. So it's not just thugs, rapists, genocidal maniacs, orcs, but also the Horde, Eastern, not European, subhuman, uncivilized, and so on and so forth. The target audience for this marketing campaign is you, the people who ultimately allow their governments to do whatever their governments want to do. And in this case, to continue financing and arming the Zelensky regime so that Zelensky can keep on spending Ukrainian lives in fighting the Western government's proxy war against Russia. But there is another critical element of this negative brand campaign, in particular of its mechanics, frequency and reach. When you're evaluating marketing channels, you need to consider frequency and reach. This campaign has tremendous sources behind it. The sum total of all the mainstream media, TV, print, radio, as well as the social media through influencers and the bots. A 24-7 cycle of repeating the same basic message or messages. And these are illegal and unprovoked Russian aggression. I'm doing air quotes. Genocide against the Ukrainian people. Personally perpetrated by Putin, though this last bit doesn't even matter because all of them are the same. Evil genocidal beasts. The words are masterfully chosen to reflect the association attributes we want to amplify for Russia. Simple and powerful genocide coupled with Russia. Tearful, unfortunate victims are paraded to get the emotional response. And the perpetrator is always known, Putin personally giving the directives and Russia collectively in their bloodthirsty genocidal fervor. And should you ever ask a clarifying question or point out inconsistencies or, God forbid, outright lies, you're immediately branded as Putin's agent, Putin's apologist, and the Russian propagandist. This ad hominem smear tactic to discredit individuals is a negative brand sister campaign that reinforces the primary Russia bad campaign. So, three steps of the Russia bad brand marketing campaign. Step number one, choose the brand image, brand associations to stress, supported by emotional messaging. Step number two, use frequency and reach to amplify emotions and shut down thinking. Because why are we amplifying the emotions? Because we want to shut down thinking. And step number three, discredit and smear those who dissent or question. Facts matter not at all. It matters not at all, amongst other things, that the actual facts are diametrically opposed to this Russia bad narrative. For example, a fact Maidan insurgents perpetrated a false flag massacre of 100 Maidan protesters effectively at the behest of the Western governments. That's a fact. I spoke about it in false narratives, false flags. False flags, false narratives post. Fact, another fact. Post-Maidan Kiev forces started shooting at their own people in Donbass, burned people in Odessa and bombed Lugansk. That's also a fact. They started the blood first. Another flag, Kiev forces kept on targeting civilian markets, schools, hospitals in Donetsk for the past eight plus years, including daily deaths and re-escalated in January 2022, well before the special military operation. That's a fact. Another fact, Kiev regime blockaded water delivery to Donbass and Crimea, something that Zelensky now claims is a crime against humanity. He just tweeted that he said that there must be no famine, the right for food, 
and clean water should be the basic human right. It must be a global goal. Anyone who tries to deprive people of food or water is an enemy to humanity. We must defeat such enemies together, like Ukraine and our partners do. He tweeted that. And yet, in 2014, the Kiev regime blockaded water delivery to Donbass and Crimea and kept on doing that for eight years. But no matter how well I understand the mechanics of marketing and brand management, and I understand them quite well, it's to a large extent my job, it still fascinates me how easy it is to manipulate the masses with dumb, blatant lies. Which brings me to Goebbels, a master propagandist and smear campaigner, a tremendous user of PR. A despicable human being, yes, but a master marketer. Goebbels was one of the best. Of Goebbels, English historian Hugh Trevor Roper wrote, wrote the following. Often he laid down his general rules. The fundamental principle of all propaganda, he declared, was the repetition of effective arguments. But those arguments must not be too refined. There was no point in seeking to convert the intellectuals. For intellectuals would never be converted and would anyway always yield to the stronger and this will always be the man in the street. Arguments must therefore be crude, clear and forcible and appeal to emotions and instincts, not to the intellect. Truth was unimportant and entirely subordinate to the tactics and psychology but convenient lies, or poetic truth, as he once called them, must always be made credible. That's what the historian Trevor, English historian Trevor, uh, Hugh Trevor Roper wrote about Goebbels. Notice that the arguments must be crude, clear and forcible, and appeal to emotions and instincts, not to the intellect. So I guess my befuddlement, my naivete even, stemmed from two points. Point number one, the fact that I've been taught not to lie, including in the brand management. And point number two, the fact that I prioritize critical thinking and analysis in this particular matter, which makes me clearly not the target audience for this, according to Goebbels. In other words, my error was the surprise itself, because this works not despite the fact that these lies are dumb, but precisely because they're dumb. And I, by the way, I do not claim to be this uber-rational person. I'm not at all inoculated against all emotional messaging. Just like any human being, I'm often susceptible to this type of marketing. I just happen to have immunized myself against this particular messaging coming from the post-Maidan Kiev regime and anybody who supports it because of my background. That is, I knew better because I was lucky about where I was born and where my childhood friends ended up. Having better facts, I was then able to build a fact-based worldview and resist the blatant propaganda coming out of Kiev and the West. As you can see, Goebbels' propaganda rules are nothing other than a recipe for an uber-successful brand campaign. But furthermore, unencumbered by truth. In the pro-Kiev messaging, we have all elements of a successful negative brand campaign, all of them, including the fact that it's not rooted in truth. Not to mention that it's delivered by a very good professional actor, Zelensky, 
He is a good actor. And this campaign is produced by his professional and successful production company, Quartal 95 Studio. Many of whom make, or made, I don't know, depending on the uh, when you're reading this or listening to this, and uh, depending on what purges are happening in the Ukrainian government, or in the Kiev government, I should say. So this campaign is produced by his professional and successful production company, many of whom make up his government and office of the president. Now, who better to execute such a campaign? But is that all? Russia's history of genocides. Okay, no matter how powerful a brand campaign is, it would be even more successful if the target audience already had some predisposition to the suggested brand associations. In other words, is this new or is it a continuation of some past campaigns in dehumanizing Russia and the Russians? If I were to highlight the aesthetic value of an iPhone in 2023, now I could do it starting from scratch, but wouldn't it be so much more powerful given Steve Jobs' work since the 1980s? So basically the last 40 years of Apple marketing inform and build a basis for and amplify the Apple marketing in 2023. Now I'm not going to cover the Nazi campaign against the USSR or the Western powers campaign after the 1917 against the Bolsheviks or the pre-Crimean war marketing campaign against Russia or the Cold War Hollywood portrayal of the Russians or the post-Cold War Hollywood portrayal of the Russians as mafia thugs. I'm not going to cover any of that, but you know it happened. What I'm going to say is that all of these exist, and you can look them up. My guest in an upcoming interview, whose job it is to look at the war propaganda, quite literally he's a professor of war propaganda, will talk about this in detail. I'm just going to make a simple statement, and the simple statement is, large swaths of the Western population eagerly believe the genocide claims from the Zelensky slash Kiev regime not only because it's well produced, but exactly because they are susceptible to Russia bad messaging due to decades, generations long anti-Russia PR. So the new consumer's logic is fairly straightforward. Russia's genocide of Ukrainians checks out because Russia is bad. We know it's bad, we've learned it at school, we see it in the movies, they perpetrated genocides in the past, also against Ukrainians, and they messed in our democracy by giving us Trump and Brexit. So it feels about right. I believe this. This is the narrative that, that each person, especially not thinking, is having in their head when looking at this. And the reason that most people are not thinking, not because they're idiots, it's just simply because Russia is not top of anybody's mind. They, everybody has their own jobs, their own families to look after, so they will not spend mental energy into thinking a lot about a particular geopolitical conflict, especially halfway around the world. And because the Hollywood and the politicians and the media are all saying the same thing, it's easy to believe that checks out Russia's bad because Russia is bad. It's always been bad. So I wanted to look at the Russia's genocide's history to see if the facts make sense. In particular, I wanted to use my dozen principles for processing information and apply these to two historical genocide accusations thrown at Russia. Now, I was born in the USSR and have no interest in defending 200-year-old alleged crimes of the Russian Empire, as I'm anti-imperialist by nature. 
At the same time, I have my reasons to believe that the Russian Empire was more humane than its Western European counterparts, even 200 years ago. So let's have a look. Of course, we must start with the definition. So let's do that. UN definition of genocide is given as, and I read verbatim, in the present convention, genocide means any of the following acts committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. And gives five points of how this could happen. Point number one, killing members of the group. Point number two, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. Point number three, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. Number four, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. Number five, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. So intent is the key. Now, the Holocaust is clearly a genocide. That's undeniable. There was clear documented intent to wipe out people of a particular race. Now, let's look at several examples thrown at the historical Russias. Example number one, Circassian genocide. So, when I said that I came across a thread... And I asked to the people in that thread, I said, show at least one documented and agreed upon instance of ethnic cleansing or genocide of minorities in Russia. A person called Farsa, ostensibly a Pashtuk Tajik with an Afghanistan flag in his profile, again, Twitter, so who knows, replied, personally, I think that over 90% of Circassians being killed or expelled from their homeland by the Russian Empire is indisputable genocide. The deportations of dozens of ethnic minorities under Stalin were also pretty clearly targeted. Just to name two. Let's leave Stalin for, for a second. And let's look at the Circassian genocide allegation. Now, to be fair, I had not known much about the Circassian situation outside of the stories by Pushkin and Lermontov, which are hardly historical accounts, and some history lessons many decades ago. So I wanted to learn more. I came at this with several factual tidbits about my own heritage, which I hold as cornerstones in thinking about all the Russias, both modern and historical. And here are the factual tid tidbits. There's one, two, there's seven of them. So number one, USSR slash Russia is home to some 190 plus ethnic groups. Number two, my father backpacked through all of the USSR, including Ural, Siberia, Kazakhstan, in the 1970s and never recorded any ethnic tension. At least in the 70s and early 80s, all the people lived in concert with each other. It was a very friendly country. Number three, Russia has many republics and autonomous regions with at least one more national language other than Russian. In Crimea, for example, there are three national languages after 2014. There's Crimean Tatar, there's Ukrainian, and there's Russian. Three official languages in Crimea, including Crimean Tatar and Ukrainian, alongside Russian. Number three, Pushkin's great-grandfather, Abram Petrovich Gunibal, or Hannibal, was an African from the modern-day Sudan, who was kidnapped by the Ottomans and given as a present to Peter the Great. Peter freed him 
adopted and raised at the emperor's court as his godson, then sent to Europe to get the best education. In Europe, Ganibal befriended the likes of Baron de Montesquieu and Voltaire, who later said about Ganibal that he called Ganibal the dark star of the Enlightenment. Now I just want to point out that during the time when the Brits and the Belgians were enslaving and trading the Africans, the Russian Tsar adopted a black boy as his own godson, which makes Pushkin the most famous of the writers of mixed race. Another point, while the Russian imperial court had many foreigners slash non-Russians, the top of the communist leadership probably had an even larger amount of non-Russians. So Stalin was Georgian, so was Beria. Brezhnev and Chernenko were Ukrainians. Gorbachev had Ukrainian maternal grandparents with whom he'd spent parts of his childhood. And Khrushchev lived in Ukraine a very long time and released the prisoners, the imprisoned Ukrainian OUN members, OUN, so Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, militants, after Stalin's death. Another tidbit, growing up in Ukraine in the 80s, we'd learn a lot about the cultures of all the other republics, starting with fairy tales as the cornerstone of any, any culture. So I spent every summer in Crimea, where we'd learn about the Crimean Tatar culture, for example. The final tidbit, at the same time, we did have ethnic-based jokes, that's not very woke, and many of our authors, such as Pushkin and Lermontov, would write somewhat less than flattering accounts of the Caucasus. Again, we'll come to see why in a second. So given all of that, would the Russians perpetrate a genocide of the Circassians back then, so more than 200 years ago, or basically 200 years ago? So a couple of immediate questions. What exactly is a genocide? Now we've just covered the official definition, so, so we've ticked that one off. The genocide must include an intent. Then the other question, why Circassians and not say Chuvash or Burats or Udmurts? or any of the other 190 nationalities that live on the territory of Russia. Indeed, why would anyone attack one or two ethnicities in a country of 190 plus ethnicities? And not a second or third dominant ethnicity either. In other words, what's so special about the Circassians? Another question, what preceded the alleged genocide? What was the historical context? That's our, uh, you know, part of our 12 principles. Like, what is the history of it? Final question, or you know, type of question, is where did they live? The Caucasus, yes, but anything there in particular in the 1700s, late 1700s and early 1800s. So here's my Twitter answer, or the beginning of, to the person after having done a little bit of research. Re Circassians. It's incorrect to call this genocide. Only one UN member recognizes it as such. It was despicable and terrible, I'm not about to defend the empire, even the Russian one from the late 1700s, even if I claim that they were more humane than comparable Western ones. So that's the beginning of my answer. Well, basically, a quick online search revealed the following. And I produce eight points. Number one. What Russian empire did to the Circassians is quite brutal. So I'm not about to start defending empires in the 1700s. But the question is of context. Number two. First, check the definition. So, done. That's checked. You've done that. Number three. Russian Empire's goal was to relocate the Circassians primarily into the Ottoman Empire. This expulsion goal was mostly achieved. 
several million Circassians live on the territory of the modern-day Turkey. There are some Circassians that live in Russia. This was done brutally and bluntly, but the intent was not to exterminate a group of people, though many did perish. So by definition, it cannot have been genocide. It was brutal and blunt. You could consider it despicable. But again, not an extermination, but expulsion. Nonetheless, why did expansion even have to be the goal? What's so specific about the Circassian situation that, that the Russian Empire, of all the nationalities that, that make up Russian Empire, including at the court, why did they make that a goal? Number four. A bit more digging revealed that the Circassians used to be predominantly Christian and friendly to Russia, but whose elites were influenced to convert to Islam by the Ottoman Empire, with the specific goal to fight the Russian Empire. Now, this is a major alarm bell in this story. One also needs to realize that both the Georgians and the Armenians who live in the region are Christian, and there is no allegation of genocide by the Russians against either. In fact, there is an Armenian genocide perpetrated by Turkey in the early 20th century especially, so we know that. But there is no, you know, there is no Russian genocide against either Georgians or the Armenians. Azerbaijani are Muslim. And again, there is no genocide allegations by them against the Russians either. So the, the major alarm bell is not necessarily that the Circassians are Muslim, but the fact that they used to be predominantly Christian and their elites were influenced to convert to Islam by the Ottoman Empire with a specific goal to fight the Russian Empire. So that builds up a context of what happened before the expulsion. Number five, knowing a bit about the Russo-Ottoman Wars of the late 1700s on the Balkans and around the Black Sea, the situation and context becomes very clear. Circassians simply got screwed and ground down in the gears of the imperialistic wars. The Ottomans managed to convince the elites to convert to Islam to use the Circassians as a bulwark against the Russian Empire. And the latter brutally quelled this would-be resistance, albeit with massive casualties and over a hundred years. The alternative for the Circassians was to keep Christianity and develop friendly relations with Russia insofar as friendship with an empire is possible. So again, empire is not whitewashing them. But the real alternative was likely joining the empire. After all, the Cossack hetmanate under Bogdan Khmelnytsky asked the Russian Tsar for protection against the Polish and the Ottomans, and thus integrated the hetmanate into the Russian Tsardom some hundred years prior. So that happened. Bogdan Khmelnytsky, the number one most famous Ukrainian hero, asked Russian Tsar for protection and integrated the Hetmanate, the Cossack Hetmanate, into the Russian Empire. Such examples of forks in the road are abound throughout history, especially of certain ethnicities getting influenced by faraway empires and getting screwed, including Ukraine. Number six. So, by the way, Russia was doing similar stuff to the Ottomans. The leaders of the Bulgarian Awakening were all educated in the Russian Empire before they went back to Bulgaria, then part of the Ottoman Empire, to stoke Bulgarian nationalism movement. So that also happened on the other side of the Black Sea, in the Balkans. 
So empires are known to have been doing this, but nonetheless, and in particular in the case of Bulgaria, Russia actually helped Bulgaria to liberate itself from the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans did not help the Circassians. They basically threw them to the murdered. Number seven, the Circassian War is the longest in Russia's history also plays a role. Various clashes lasted 101 years, from 1763 to 1864, while the most brutal period was 1817 through 1864. So these 101 years were characterized by brutal clashes and massive casualties on both sides. About 1.6 million dead each. The Russia lost predominantly army, or some civilians, in the borderlands, and Circassia had many civilian casualties. But still, both the Ottoman and British involvement egging the Circassians to fight Russia and the length of the conflict all matter. Unlike the Holocaust and the Armenian Genocide, we're dealing with a brutal, bilaterally prolonged armed conflict rather than a one-sided brutality of a superior force against a peoples. And this is clear. There was no intent of the Russians to exterminate Circassians. It was a war between bordering countries that lasted more than 100 years. Critically, the goal was clearly not the extermination of the peoples. Again, this is really important. Context matters. Number eight. If I allow myself some analysis, I understand that common Circassians got screwed both by their elites as well as by the foreign imperial powers, such as British and the Ottoman empires. Common Circassians unfortunately paid a price for the actions of their elites. I'm not going to say it's all their own fault, because obviously women and children had very little to say in the politics. And also Russian Empire was expanding and any expansionary war is brutal by nature. But I also understand that Russian actions, in the context of the threats from both the Ottoman and the British empires, as well as the Circassian attacks on its borderlands, which all existed. And I don't know who started, but over 101 years it becomes less important. Circassians had a chance to find a diplomatic solution, but they were influenced by the Brits and Ottomans with false promises to continue fighting the Russians. And finally, they got screwed. They were betrayed by Brits and the, and the Ottomans. The lack of possibility or willingness of each side to negotiate peacefully. Let me repeat the last sentence again because I went off track. But I also understand Russian actions in the context of the threats from both the Ottoman and the British empires, as well as the Circassian attacks on its borderlands, and the lack of possibility or willingness of either side to negotiate peacefully. Now, when I presented most of the above to Farsa, he did not reply. But he replied to somebody else making a similar point with this tweet. Uh, laughing my fucking ass off. Are you saying they brought it upon themselves because they started it and that it was just migration? Garbage lies. Russia invaded because Circassia was the last Caucasus holdout that they forced them out to make a docile settler col colony. You're a fascist ethno-nationalist. That's Farsa's tweet to somebody else. 
Now, I made my point again. I replied to this one, and, I, and I, basically I, I didn't get any response to any of the facts that I presented. I only added one further critical thinking exercise. My tweet was also, let's just use critical thinking. Knowing the Caucasus mountain geography, what would Russian Empire gain from an unprovoked attack on mountain strongholds to turn them into a docile colony, quote-unquote? What, for their rich agricultural soil, question mark? Because they just hate independent mountain peoples, question mark? Why, question mark? So all of these are valid questions. Now, by the way, I might have been wrong about the rich agricultural soil. I have to come clean on that. Russo-Circassian wars lasted over 100 years, and old Circassia did have fertile lands in the lowlands and mountain valleys, now part of the Krasnodar Krai. So this northern Caucasus is actually quite fertile. Here, I was depending on my understanding of the Caucasus without first verifying where Circassia lay exactly. Now it covered both low and highlands. Circassia also had massive access to the Black Sea, which Russia wanted. Although after taking the northern shores of the Black Sea from the Ottomans in the late 1700s, with much better and deeper waters for shipbuilding, the mountainous eastern shores were probably less important from the access point of view. On the other hand, I also understand the involvement of the British Empire alongside the Ottoman Empire. In particular, the British Empire supported Circassia with weapons, advisors, and promises. Again, not dissimilar to how Ukraine is being used these days. In fact, the parallels are so striking, it's unbelievable. If you want, you can follow the above tweets in a thread up and down to see my other arguments about both Stalin and Jews in Russia. So what have I just done? I understood the framing of Farsa, which was Russians are brutal with a history of genocides dating back to 1700s, and therefore everything they are doing now is just a continuation of that because they are brutal by nature. But my own experience and knowledge of history forced me to dig deeper into the historical context of the alleged genocide of the Circassian people. Critically, furthermore, using my principle of assume rational explanation for actions and beware absolute evil explanations made me immediately wary of genocidal Russians treat minorities badly comments, which is also just objectively not true. Using some of the principles I enumerated in my dirty dozen thinking principles of how I process information, I was able to reconstruct the historical context for the forced expulsion of the Circassians from the Russian Empire to the territory of the Ottoman Empire. Horrible and brutal, yes, but now within the context of history. And not a genocide. The principles I used were looking at what preceded, what was the historical context of conflicts, Russian Empire versus Ottoman Empire, how the local behavior in the part of the Caucasus related to this, the geography of the Caucasus, to disband the myth of the docile colony, who benefited from what actions, involvement of foreign forces, the Ottomans and the British, asking under what circumstances would this be true. So all these principles. I dismissed the fertile land argument too easily and underestimated the Black Sea access, though compared to Odessa slash Nikolaev slash Kherson shore, Circassian nexus is probably less important for shipbuilding. I dismissed these too easily, but I also underestimated the British Empire involvement. 
So on balance, I think my quick and dirty five-minute reading into the Circassian genocide, heavy quotes, was good enough to grasp the situation. The questions to pose costs very little effort. Finding answers requires a bit more, but can still be done relatively fast. I'm now also much better positioned to handle any argument along the lines of Russians want to genocide XYZ because they have a history of genocides because Russia brutal, because Russia bad. So my point is, by applying the critical thinking principles and looking at the history and reconstructing the cause-effect chains, you can understand the situation much better. Not fall to the knee-jerk reaction so somebody's just bad because they are, because of course they are. Holodomor as the National Foundation Myth The 4th Saturday of November is a Holodomor Memorial Day in Ukraine. Holodomor relates to the famine of 1932-1933 and is recognized as a genocide against the Ukrainian people in Ukraine and several other states. It is also the most egregious abuse of the concept of genocide as a political weapon against both the USSR and, even more so, ironically, against the modern-day Russia. Let's follow our principles. Number one. Fact. There was a USSR-wide famine in 1930-1933 with 5.7 to 8.7 million estimated deaths. Question. Was it man-made? And another question, was it targeted against Ukrainians? Point number two. Geographical extent of the famine included Ukraine, 3.9 million dead, Northern Caucasus, Volga region, Kazakhstan, 1.3 million, the South Urals, and West Siberia. Russia's deaths estimated at 3.3 million. So purely on the geographical basis alone, I fail to understand how a USSR-wide humanitarian catastrophe that covered Ural, Siberia, Northern Caucasus, Kazakhstan, and Volga region, how can such a catastrophe ever be misconstrued as a genocide against Ukrainians? It just makes no sense. So this should be enough to debunk the Ukrainian Holodomor genocide myth, honestly, full stop. This is enough. It's bullshit. It's pure bullshit. And it, it flies into the face of anything. And, and it's easily debunkable. Geographically, anything that includes West Siberia, South Ural, Kazakhstan, Northern Caucasus, Volga region, and Ukraine cannot be... Just in, in no way can it be a genocide against Ukrainians. That, that's full stop. But we can dig deeper. Point number three. Historically, there had been many droughts and famines in both the Tsarist Russia and the USSR in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. For example, 1891 to 1892 along Volga River, then Urals and Ukraine, in 1899 in Volga region, mainly Samara. Golubov and Dronin published a report at the Center of Environmental Systems Research, Kassel, Germany, titled Geography of Droughts and Food Problems in Russia, 1900-2000, to where they give a list of the following droughts by geography. Central, 1920-1924, 1936-1946-1984. Southern, 
1905. Eastern, 1911, 1931. Mass famines after 1900 were reported in the 1920s and 1930s in the areas affected by drought, the last famine in 1946. For reference, there were famines in similar years also in other parts of the world, notably China, with drought being a major factor in almost all Chinese famines. There was a famine in China between 1898 and 1901, in 1906-1907, due to floods, in 1920-1921, 1928-1930, 1936-1937, 1942-43. So learning, bad weather happened regularly, in the grain-producing regions of Russia, which led to occasional famines, regardless of what regime was at the helm. But bad weather turns into famines when a country has low productivity, and other issues in the agricultural sector, and something that was true as the legacy of Tsarist Russia. It's well documented in Tsarist Russia, and the communists were trying to deal with it, but they still had the legacy of the Tsarist Russia in 1920s and 1930s. Point number four. Most historians seem to agree on there being human factors in the Soviet famine. These factors come in two forms. Unintended consequences of the reforms and modernization during the transitional period and sabotage. Actually, sabotage and environmental terrorism is itself an unintended consequence of the reforms. During the collectivization and the battle with the wealthy farmers, known as kulaks, kulaks murdered their own cattle and hid bread and grains, rather than give these up to the government for feeding of the workers in the cities. The grains and bread hidden in the ground went stale and developed fungus, which then led to disease and deaths from poisoning. And of course, mass culling of cattle obviously led to wasted meat and meat shortages. This type of sabotage was not small. It was a major contributing factor to the famine. This is an application of Hanlon's razor and the avoid absolute evil explanations principle. Incompetence and unintended consequences via sabotage seem like much more plausible explanations of the famine than Stalin bed. But let's look at the motivations. Point number five. Would Stalin and the Soviet government benefit from instituting a famine, a genocide of its own people, or food terror? If so, under what conditions? Well, this seems highly unlikely. Stalin wanted to reform the outdated Tsarist Russia economy and industry to modernize, to benefit the workers and the peasants. Yes, at the expense of the one percenters of the capitalist class. And to be able to either withstand another attack by the imperialist empires, like the intervention in the Russian civil war after the 1917 revolution, and or help support communism abroad. These were the desires. Murdering 10 million of your own peasants seems to be a rather counterproductive means to this end, don't you think? Now, repressions against the wealthy land-owning class 
for the benefit of the masses, that would make sense. You hurt one percenters who own disproportionate amount of the wealth in order to redistribute that wealth to the other 99%. If the one percenters don't want to give up that wealth willingly, that makes sense. Murdering tens of millions of the masses for the benefit of who exactly? This would make absolutely zero sense. It, it's, 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 it's unbelievably stupid. Now, apart from killing productive human resource, famines would undermine trust in the Bolshevik government and the Bolshevik reforms themselves. Who would believe in the good of the Bolshevik rule if the Bolsheviks started walking around killing millions of people? All of which would, would greatly complicate the ability of Stalin to carry out further necessary reforms, if not make it impossible to hold on to power altogether. Which, if we apply the who benefits principle, means only one thing. If there had been malice in the origins of the famine, then this malice only benefited anti-Bolsheviks and hurt the Bolsheviks. Which means it could not have been Stalin who perpetrated this malice. Number six. So there was zero rational motivation to have instituted a man-made famine. There had been a history of droughts and famines in Russia even before 1917 due to bad productivity in the farming sector. There had been wide-scale sabotage by the Kulaks during the agricultural reforms in the 1930s, and many regions were affected with Ukraine accounting for roughly one-third of all the deaths. By all accounts, the Soviet-wide tragedy could not have been a genocide against Ukrainians. So why is it presented as such? In other words, who would benefit from the misrepresentation of the reality? Well, the answer to that is simple. Whoever wanted to demonize the Bolsheviks, the USSR, especially Washington during the Cold War, when Holodomor was first coined and presented. So the foreign powers were interested in demonizing the USSR, so they benefited the most. But that's not all. Point number seven. Why would the Ukrainian ultra-nationalists in particular pick up the Holodomor myth as a foundational myth to build their nation? Now I have several random thoughts that I will say under this point, okay? So why would they benefit? Bullet number one. Well, jealousy of the Holocaust and Armenian genocide's legacies. Wouldn't it be cool to have our own Holocaust when we, you know, even if we have to invent it from scratch? We could use it for political reasons. Periods of struggle are powerful foundational myths to build a national idea where none exists. Because people bend in a struggle. The communist idea disappeared from the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic territory. So how do you keep together this diverse, multi-ethnic population with irreconcilable East-West internal dynamic, East being basically Russian and the West having been under Poland for 700 years? And this is where Bandera is coming from. And Bandera is hated in the East. Building a new, common Ukrainian identity is a necessity. But here it was done by trying to impose the Galician ones, Galicia being where Lvov is and, and around, onto 
the central Ukraine and especially onto the southeast of Ukraine, where Galician ethnocultural identity had always been rejected. Choosing a victim mentality to make Ukrainians feel aggrieved at Moscow for invented crimes of the past was a powerful way to forge this common identity in lieu of communism. So communism is out, there is a vacuum of the ideology, there is a vacuum of, an, of a national idea, and you're filling that vacuum with a victim mentality by inventing Holodomor and by painting all Ukrainians as victims of Holodomor, of an aggression of somebody else. It is a powerful nation-building idea. It's fake, but it's powerful. And again, as we've seen before, emotional ideas don't have to be true. That's the Goebbels principle. So in branding, there are two types of building an identity, either positively and not referencing anyone, for example, cola, Coca-Cola, or else by being an uncola. And uncola is a thing. For example, positioning your brand as the opposite of another, more famous brand. Pepsi is using an uncola type of campaigning. Burger King is using an uncola type of campaigning as well. Burger King positions itself against McDonald's. Pepsi positions itself against Cola. Cola does not position itself against Pepsi. McDonald's does not position itself against anybody. So Ukraine being anti-Russia, Ukraine is anti-Russia, is an effective brand-building exercise in that sense. Now, in forcing others to accept Holodomor, Kiev can also sue for reparations for Moscow, which is a direct financial benefit angle. Furthermore, there is zero drawback for Kiev. The ultra-nationalist elements don't care about worsening the relationship with Moscow. In fact, worsening the relationship with Moscow is the goal as it also poisons the relationship between ethnically Russian southeast of Ukraine and Moscow. As we covered before, Maidan was less supported than anti-Maidan demonstrations in 2013-2014. So driving and, and so across all of Ukraine, but especially in the southeast and central. So driving a wedge between the southeast of Ukraine and Russia is the priority number one for the Ukrainian nationalists and Kiev power structures. Because even in 2021, majority of Ukrainians, if you include Crimea and Donbass, or 41% if you exclude those, agreed with the statement Ukrainians and Russians are one people. This was reported by the BBC. This percentage used to be much higher before the Holodomor commemorations legislation. And every project like Holodomor helps create a wedge between us and them. With the ideas like, look at what they did to us. And again, using the Goebbels principles, it's fake, but it's simple and it's emotional, and so it doesn't matter that it's fake. So, this will be, by the way, the last time I use predominantly Western sources for support. I've done enough to show how to use critical thinking, logic, and game theory principles to analyze information for veracity. And I've been doing this solely on the example of the trusted, heavy quotes, Western and Ukrainian mainstream sources. And I showed beyond any reasonable doubt, in my opinion, that the Western sources are not that trusted in reality. They shouldn't be that trusted. 
Therefore, I'm removing my own self-imposed handicap on the sources and I'll be from now on quoting independent and Russian sources I consider reliable. It's not to say that I'll be quoting all sources because I don't consider any source particularly reliable, but I'll be quoting multiple sources using my own principle. As such, here are some sources on the Holodomor myth, which you can read in Russian, or you can use your browser's translation function if needed. And there are multiple well-researched, well-argued sources about who benefits from Holodomor, how this came, came about. Basically, it's a negative marketing campaign against Russia, targeting Russia. And it grew out of the Cold War marketing campaign against the Soviet Union. So they're all in Russian. I put the links in the text version of this. Final thoughts. So what have we shown? Six points. Number one, Russia Bad is an exceptionally well-executed negative brand building campaign. Or to be precise, the latest in a long sequence of such campaigns that go back decades even generations, sometimes hundreds of years, and I'm talking about the Crimean War. Number two, this negative brand campaign uses the principles of Goebbels when it comes to the truth. That is, it's built on pure lies. Half-truths in some cases, but also it uses pure lies. Number three, Western media, both traditional and social, offers a 24-7 marketing channel with massive reach supporting the Russia bad PR campaign and the sister campaign in smearing anyone who dissents. Number four. All of this is furthermore enabled through decades of Russia bad indoctrination through Hollywood, education, mass media, including hoaxes like Russia gates, Russia in Syria, war crimes, mass rapes, and genocides. Number five. The two most prominent genocide accusations, Circassian and Holodomor, turn out to have been no genocides at all, even after a little investigation. Circassian forced exodus was an outcome of a hundred-year war within a complex geopolitical and religious setting where extermination was decidedly not the goal, and Holodomor was a pure fabrication a subversion of the USSR white tragedy, a famine where many Soviet people perished and in which Ukrainians were a sizable but a minority. And number six, genocide accusations, especially that of Holodomor, are purposefully a political propaganda slash negative brand association tool which has concrete goals, such as smear and dehumanize Russia, previously the USSR, build Ukrainian hatred of Russia, even in the ethnically Russian southeast of Ukraine, and build Ukrainian identity via invented trauma. Now, what you do with this information is up to you. I would recommend writing to your local newspaper and writing to your local political representative and also talking on social about it. Now, I've tried to do both of these, well, all of these. This blog is another channel. Now, remember my dual purpose. Number one, to share my thinking tools for you to use. You don't have to arrive at my conclusions. And number two, to find realistic solutions to conflicts. If you take the second, do we really think that demonizing Russia, that demonizing Russia is a great idea? 
a country with some 140 plus million people and the largest and most advanced nuclear arsenal. I think demonizing Russia is beyond dumb as far as the world peace is concerned. Now, I might have been even fine with it if it were deserved. But no matter where I look, I only come to the same conclusion. Russia and Putin demonization is nothing other than a Goebbels-style propaganda exercise, not rooted in any reality whatsoever. Now, it's fake news not because I want it to be, but it's objectively and demonstrably fake, based on evidence. And remember, up till now, I've only used the reliable quote-unquote Western and Ukrainian mainstream media sources, academic articles, and other such material. That is, zero Russian propaganda. Now, I'm removing this self-imposed handicap, but up till now, it's been true. So, why is this Russia bad PR campaign run? That is, what's the benefit for the West from running it? We'll look at this question in one of our next installments, but the short answer is simple. It's the economist too. Thank you for listening. Subscribe. Share. Give us some money if you feel like supporting independent analytic work. Thank you. AI.